Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all again tonight. I want to thank you for all your prayers on behalf of my wife and myself. The Lord has heard them, and uh, it's good to wait on the Lord and to rest in all that he is for us. And so we, we covet your continued prayers as well. We love you, and we're so thankful, and I'm so thankful to be with you again this day. Our reading is from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, we know the setting well. Verses 1 through 6 will be our text, but we're going to read through verse 14. Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Make up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to pray. Play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have not, or they have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing 
on his people. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they all perish. But the word of our God endures forever, and this is God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord our God, we ask now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts, give your servant grace to proclaim the word, and your people to hear it. You have said, O God, seek my face. Your people reply, your face, O Lord, will we seek. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure you have asked yourself while we read this passage this evening, how is it possible that Israel would fall into such a great sin so quickly, such a deep, gross sin, after having been delivered up on eagle's wings from the bondage of Egypt through the parted Red Sea? And what's more? They're standing at the bottom of the Mount of Zion. The glory of God is on the summit. Fire and thunder and lightning. And that morning, they ate the manna that God had provided so graciously for his people. How could they so quickly sin against the God who redeemed them? Well, this evening we'll look at the anatomy of Israel's sin of idolatry and then consider how, by God's design, false worship and true worship have the same result. God tells us in his word that we become what we worship. We become what we worship. And so as we go through this passage this evening, I want you to be thinking about the question, who do you worship? Or maybe it might be easier to answer that question by asking the answer by asking this question, who do you resemble? Who do you resemble? First, we're going to look at Israel's faltering or leaders who faltered. Before Moses left, to ascend them out, to be with Yahweh, he explicitly said to Israel, wait here for us until we return to you. In chapter 24, verse 14, and then he appointed Aaron and Ur so that they would be their leaders. Now verse 1 of chapter 32 tells us that Israel got impatient And they weren't willing to wait upon the Lord. It is a difficult thing to wait upon the Lord. But they weren't willing to wait for the Lord's will to be revealed. And so with disrespect and indifference, notice how they speak of God's servant, God's mediator, their leader, the appointed of God, in verse 1. With scorn they say, This Moses, as for him... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses had been gone about this, about 40 days. The top of the mountain 
had all the while been filled with lightning and with thunder. But of course, this took faith to believe, and it took faith to understand that that was the presence of the Almighty God, the one who delivered them. But here we meet with a faithless people. And by their speech to Aaron, it seems that they were afraid of the prospect of being stranded in the wilderness with no one to lead them into the promised land. And notice the results. Notice what they did. They, verse 1, surrounded Aaron. They gathered themselves together. Now, that denotes a mob mentality. That's what's going on here. They crowded around Aaron and they intimidated him. That was their purpose. And notice their demand. Up. Make us gods who shall go before us. This was no asking. They were demanding of Aaron, their new leader, that he should produce gods for them. Now sometimes people in the church here, in the evangelical church, they use the same tactics. They intimidate, they pressure their pastors and their elders, lobbying for their agenda. And sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I'm not the only one. There are many others who think just like me. And this is why spiritual leaders need to be unafraid. They need to have this unfailing, courageous an uncompromising conviction when it comes to theology, when it comes to liturgy, when it comes to worship, and to discipline. It's always, always much more difficult to do what is right than to do what is popular. When Aaron faced this challenge, He failed to do what was right. And the result was that he led Israel to violate the first and the second commandments of God. To turn them away from the only true and eternal God, their Savior. And we need to understand that that Yahweh had already given Israel the law of God in Exodus 20. This was prior to Moses going up to the mountain the last time. They knew God's command. They knew that God was a jealous God. They knew that this God wanted their devotion and their heart. They knew that they were to worship no other God than Yahweh, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he was not to be worshipped by vain images because the essence of the Christian faith is to live by faith, not by sight. Aaron gave in, though, to their demands, and he commanded them that they would give all their gold jewelry, their earrings and such. 
the earrings, the gold jewelry that they had, you remember, obtained from Egypt as they plundered the Egyptians on their exit, they now give to Aaron. And Aaron receives then these gifts and he melts them down into the solid mass of gold and finishes it with a carving or graving tool into a calf. Now you might ask, why a calf? Why a calf, a young bull? Well, it's quite probable that this is what they saw in Egypt. Because the Egyptians worshipped many different gods, and they were represented by bulls. And when Aaron had done, was done with this new deity, he proclaimed, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then, to make matters worse, you know what Aaron did? He built an altar before the calves and set it before them and made a proclamation that the next day there would be a feast. To who? Yahweh. And now you see the result of the people's disrespect and indifference to God's servant Moses. What was the key, the great sin of Israel here? Well, there are many mentioned too. But even greater, perhaps, or along with these two sins, Israel thought that they could worship the true and living God the God who is exalted above the heavens, the one who dwells in eternity, they thought they could worship him without a mediator. Imagine. And so Israel sinned grievously, led by Israel's leaders, particularly Aaron. The second thing I want you to see is how Israel's worship here mimics, or how Israel's false worship mimics true worship. Israel's false worship mimics mimics true worship. Because you see what's going on here? Do you see what Moses, as he writes this, is describing to us as he pens this this scene? What's going on here is an aberration of the true worship of the triune God. What our forefathers often called will worship. They wanted to worship God in their own style, according to their own way, but with their own priest, their own altar, their own sacrifice, and now with their own gods, these golden calves. And what's so deceitful about their worship, their style, this false worship, is that it mimics true worship. Now, if you know the book, the last book of the Bible, well, if you know the book of Revelation that John writes, you will know that their Satan mimics God, the triune God with the sea dragon and the land uh, dragon. They 
or the false trinity, but they're mimicking the true trinity. And you'll notice it by even language about the dragon. It has, as it were, a, a wound upon its head. Same language as is spoken of the true lamb in Revelation chapter um, 6. And that's what's going on here. False worship is mimicking true worship. It's a hundred years ago that Machen wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And he spoke of the deception there of how the moderates of his day, how they don't throw out Christianity outright, but they reinterpret the creeds and they give old words new meaning. And we see some of that same element here. Let's walk through a couple of them. First notice that the worship was initiated by the people, verse 1. It was the people who demanded this worship according to their own imagination. Up, they said to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Rather than waiting upon God and worshiping through a mediator, Moses, the one that God had provided, they, the people, came up with an alternative plan. But second, look at their worship was costly. Notice how God, if you go back in Exodus 25, verse 2, if you go back, you'll see how God instructs Moses to receive contributions for the tabernacle. Exodus 25, I said, yes, 25, verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. In other words, it was a free will offering. As the Spirit moved among the people, they would give of that which... God had given them. But notice here what's happening now. Aaron demands that they give their gold jewelry, their gold earrings to him. He says, take off the rings of gold that are on your ears of your sons, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. No free will offering. Nothing from the heart. It is a demand. And thus there was, there was a sacrifice, clearly. It was costly, but not in the way that God had called for them to give gifts. But thirdly, their worship is passed off as orthodox. It's so telling that Aaron speaks of the feast of Yahweh. And they, he said to the people, you are worshiping Yahweh. They were offering him burnt offerings. They brought peace offerings. They even sat down to drink, to eat and to drink, mimicking the covenant meal where God in Exodus 24 met with the elders of Israel and Moses and sat down and had a meal. And all this worship was engaged with celebration and pleasure. Verse 17 and 18 tells us that. 
There was a noise in the camp. It wasn't the sound of the shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. You see, it had many components of true worship. It looked like genuine worship. There was a desire, even, for worship. They gave of their belongings or for worship. And who can deny that they were exuberant in their worship? And here is the great tragedy, my friends. If you would have asked any of those Israelites that day, oh, how was your worship service this morning? They would have replied, it was the best service we had. It was just great, grand. And they would have said it with enthusiasm. But here's the sobering aspect. The ecstasy, the excitement of this religious experience was not from enjoying fellowship with our covenant Lord, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. No, not at all. The Lord was not with them. And that's the irony of it all. God was not part of this service. Everything is horizontal. No vertical aspect at all. You don't even hear, actually, God speaking in this passage until he brings judgment. My dear friends, that's the problem. When we violate God's design for his holy worship, when we don't worship God according to the way he has designed, and rather worship according to our own imagination. We don't have time to consider the Lord's perspective on this worship of theirs, but we've read it, and it's not good. God's judgment came down upon Israel. But lastly, as we draw some applications from this, I want you to see that Israel became what she worshipped. She became what she worshipped. Israel's sin of not waiting for Moses and Aaron's sin of, of compromise led them to devise their own way of worship. And thus be, they became idolaters. Idolaters. If you go to Psalm 106, verse 19, we have a commentary on this history. Psalm 106, verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. The psalmist here, he sums up this whole debacle by saying that Israel exchanged the living God, their glory, the manifestation of whose glory was so wonderfully present at the summit of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb for an idol, for a man-made image. 
Can you imagine? And the psalmist speaks of Israel not merely exchanging the true God for a false God, but also includes Israel exchanging the glory of God for the image of an idol. They, as the people of God, you as the people of God, we are called to image the glory of God, to reflect His glory throughout all the world as His worshipers. That's our holy task. And Israel, though they exchanged that glory for the image of a golden calf, which they subsequently reflected. And the Apostle Paul, you remember how he picks up on this language in Romans 1, as he speaks of all those who sin against God with rebellion in their hearts. He says, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And this exchange is always always for an object that is less noble, earthly. And this exchange then includes the glorious reflection of the true and living God for the ignoble reflection of an idol. That's always what happens. Psalm 115 identifies the worship, the result of idol worship so well. In verse 8, the psalmist says, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. To put it very literally, Israel, at the base of Mount Sinai, exchanged the glory of Yahweh and his shining face, his glorious presence with Israel for that of a calf, a young bull, and became like that bull. In other words, they became what they worshipped. Now it's interesting how Moses in this passage then describes Israel in a manner that sounds like they were being portrayed as wild calves or untrained cows. Did you catch the language in our reading? They are a stiff-necked people. In other words, they don't want to be yoked because they do not want to obey, verse 9. Or how about verse 25? As Moses continues this narrative, he speaks of them as breaking loose, of running wild. Verse 25, speaking to Moses or Aaron, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. Or verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way. The prophet Hosea, in chapter 4, verse 16, which is an echo 
of the golden calf in, uh, event speaks like this. Hosea 4, verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. And you see, as Moses speaks of the conduct of Israel, it's like they're animals. Like wild animals, wild calves that can't be trained. So much so, he says, that they have made themselves a mockery to the enemies. Their enemies look on and they say, what's happening here? Now what's Moses speaking about? Well, in part the way they acted as they worshipped around the bull. They began dancing, probably in various stages of nakedness. At the end of verse 6, Moses tells us that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And their word here, play, or to revel, has sexual overtones or connotations. They acted like animals. No discipline. They were let loose. They were not self-controlled not worthy of respect, they became a stumbling, laughing stock. But sin's always like that, isn't it? When it breaks loose, as we're seeing in the culture and sadly in the church today widely, it always has a degrading power a destructive power, an ugliness resulting in inhumane, even bestial and animal-like behavior because sin knows no limits. Israel, as it worshipped the golden calf, became like a calf, rebellious, Stubborn, stiff-necked, and running wild. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 8, you become what you worship. Now the question that we began with is an all-important one. Who do you resemble? Who do you resemble? Because the answer to that question will indicate who you worship. God has designed this principle in Holy Scripture. He has told us that you will become what you worship. Now, we see this all around us, don't we? Everywhere you look, you see this. A person who loves sports lives for sports. And it so characterizes his life that all he can think of is his favorite team or, or being at that game. He would love to be part of that game. But that's his life. That's all he talks about. And it's truly amazing to me. It's truly amazing to me how many people in the church know more about sports trivia 
or movie stars and movies than they know about the Holy Bible and all the stories of Holy Scripture, as we read earlier about the great things that God has done. I'm amazed how little people know about the Word and just the Old Testament, let much or the New Testament, much less the Old Testament. But they know all the statistics of the Open or the, uh, the, the NHL, the NFL, all the different plays of the teams of baseball and on and on. God's instruction for his holy worship to Moses underlines this great, powerful principle. At the end of Exodus 29, God tells Moses that everything in the tabernacle was for the sanctifying of his people. In other words, to make them holy. That's what sanctifying means, to separate them from the world, things, ordinances, worship, sacrifice, and the like, to make them holy, to sanctify them, to make them devoted. Now why? Why was this God's plan? Because God's holy. The one who had brought them out of the land of bondage and delivered them from the land of Ham. He is the thrice holy God who is worthy of our worship. And Moses then, as he sanctifies all the ordinances for Israel's use, it was to make them holy, separate from the world, devoted and dedicated to God. It was to re- so that they would resemble God who is holy. That great dictum, be holy as I'm holy. Or we could say, Moses could tell the people, if you continued in the way that God had prescribed, you would become what you worship. Do you see the beauty of it? It's so beautiful. So the great lesson we learn in this passage is that we ought to worship God according to his design. We ought to worship him in the manner, in the way that he has so wonderfully prescribed in Scripture. And the question ought never to be, it ought never to be, what do people want? Or how do we think we should best worship God? We, sh- we don't take surveys or polls and say, well, this is what will determine our worship. That type of worship will always be horizontal. Always. We're not here to worship ourselves, you see. We're here to worship the triune God who dwells in his holy sanctuary. That kind of worship which is horizontal and when a little bit of God talk is sprinkled into it for good measure, but it will never take us to the heights of glory. It will never be a spirit-wrought worship from within our hearts by the Spirit so that we join with the heavenly host on Mount Sion where God dwells. 
It will never bring us through that open door that we read of in Revelation 4. As our Lord Jesus Christ so tenderly and sweetly takes John by the hand through the open door and gives him the grandeur of heaven's worship. Where the Lamb is on the throne in all his glory and wonder and power adorned by all the people of God. But my dear friends, this is what we want, don't we? We want Revelation 4 and 5 every week, every worship service. That's what we desire. That's what we want. That's what our experience ought to be. We want a glimpse of the glory of God to see Him in His majesty, His power, his holiness, his beauty. We want, as David said in Psalm 63, we want to gaze upon him in his holy sanctuary, upon his power, upon his glory, the one who alone is worthy of all our worship. And when we worship our true God in faith, According to his design, something gloriously happens. It's glorious. It's so beautiful. We begin to be transformed from the image of Adam into the likeness of the second Adam, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's through the ordinances, the worship of God, the praying, the singing of the psalms and the hymns, the sacraments, through the sermons preached, the teaching taught, that God is repairing His image in us. It's by His design. So not only does God get all the glory, God is working in us through these means so that He might remake us, repair us, make us into the image of the Son of God so that we can again truly more and more reflect and live for His glory. Do you see it? Because we are created to be God's children. Just as you children reflect your parents' identity You can't help it. So God's children ought to reflect his identity, which we do as we reflect the glorious attributes of his divine nature. The Apostle Paul so wonderfully taught this glorious truth, and it is a glorious truth of how God works through means, these simple, ordinary means of grace to sanctify us, to make us more holy. Having declared us to be righteous, he's making us righteous. and This is the way he does it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
And so, my dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, it's only the true worship of God that will keep you from all idolatry. Now, we can go through lists and lists of idolatry. All our little idols that we have erected in our hearts or minds. And we all have them. We have them. But the only thing that will slay those idols in your heart, that will put them to death, that will take them from the throne of your heart, is to worship the true and living God in the way that he has prescribed through faith from week to week. Don't forget, God is the one who has ordained not only the means, the sacred elements of holy worship, but he's also ordained the schedule one day in seven for his worship. He knows who we are. And when we don't, what do we do? We gravitate to the idols, that which is earthly. But every Lord's day, he calls his people together and he says, come worship me so that I might recalibrate your heart and your mind and your affection for me. It's in this way that God keeps us from idolatry. And it's only the true worship of God through the Spirit of God. Using the means that God has ordained that he repairs then the marred image in each of us because of our sin in Adam and our actual sins. And so the true worship of God is both a deterrent and a repairer. So glorious. And that's why this episode of the golden calf, when you read it, read the whole episode, but you know that this whole golden calf episode is hugged, as it were, by chapters 31 and 35. And do you know what the content of those chapters are? It's by God's command to his holy people to keep the holy day, God's day, to keep the Sabbath so that they might worship their God, their covenant Lord, and their Savior. You see, this is God's gracious method to keep us from sin and then restoring us when we have sinned. Isn't he a wonderful God? Such a gracious, merciful God. He cares more about you than you care about yourself and he cares more about his worship than you care about his worship. But he wants us and he's moving us and he's motivating us in both ways for his glory and your eternal good. Why? Because he wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, my dear friends, this is not just an Old Testament exhortation or sin, is it? No. Do you remember the Apostle John, the the beloved Apostle? Do you remember his last words to the church in his first epistle? These are my last words to you tonight. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. And now, God has told you how. May God give us grace to be faithful. Let us pray.
Oh God, you are faithful even though we are faithless. You're the God of grace and mercy and you have our end in view all the time. You want the very best for your children because you are concerned about your glory, a glory that you will share with no one else for you are a jealous God and you have purchased us with the precious blood of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you will have us worship you through him, the mediator that you have provided, and by the power of the Spirit, so that you will receive all the glory and we will receive all the blessing. For you, Father, desire those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we're so grateful that you have taught us these things, that you have allowed us to be part of this congregation and denomination in which we believe worships you according to the ordinances and the designs that you have prescribed in your holy word. And so we ask, dear Father, that you would help us not to take it for granted, that we would never sin against you in thinking that, we, that you would be worshipped according to our imagination. But, oh God, we pray and we plead with you that you would continue to bless the simple, ordinary means of grace that you have established for our benefit, for the benefit of our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, and that they would always know you. And, Lord, as we see them grow up, developing that they like us, that it might be said of our, what it was said of our Lord Jesus, that we grew in favor with God and with men. In other words, that we, have, we are growing from one degree of glory to another, to the glory of your great name. Oh God, we desire to reflect you. We want to reflect your glory in every part of our life. And so continue to bless your people from one degree of glory to the next until you glorify us on that great day. So bless your dear people here, Lord. Sanctify them through the word. Bless the elders, the pastor, and grant them all your grace. We ask this in the name of our beloved Savior, the one who loves us and has given his life for us. Amen.